0: wonderful. Uh, I've had an incredible hospitality that's been shown to me. Uh, Pastor, thank you so much for having me in your home for dinner the other night. Uh, Brian and Alyssa actually uh, gave up their room for us to stay in, so we have been blessed. And uh, you guys are wonderful people and have been so kind. And if you don't understand me like some of the people did last night at the marriage conference, just kind of raise your hand and I'll stop and go slower. If you have your Bibles, turn to Zechariah chapter 3 this morning. Zechariah chapter 3 this morning. The church that I pastor actually has their service at 9 a.m. as well, and um, we, we always get a little pushback because everybody says that's early. I took a picture of your little card and bulletin this morning and said there are other people that have service at 9 a.m. Get with it. The title of my message today is Is finding your worth and value in Christ, an Old Testament picture. Finding your worth and value in Christ, an Old Testament picture. Paul Tripp writes this. He says human beings are always assigning to themselves some kind of identity. There are only two places to look, he writes. Either you'll be getting your identity vertically from who you are in Christ, or you will be shopping for it horizontally in the situations, experiences, and relationships of your daily life. The battle for identity is real, where you get your worth and value impacts every race, age, and occupation. I'm battling for identity issues weekly, if not daily in my own life. I'm constantly going to the well of the gospel as I remind myself, of who I am in Jesus. Culture is telling us that our identity comes from things like looks, performance, achievement, success, power, and approval. Our tendency is to identify ourselves by what we do, not who we are. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, or in him, 147 times in the New Testament letters. I would say it was a pretty big deal for the Apostle Paul to communicate to people to help them understand who they were in Jesus. These phrases confirm our new position in the family of God because we've put our faith and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to save us. A proper understanding of our identity directly affects our Christian growth and our witness to the world. The passage that I'm going to look at in Zechariah chapter 3, this is a minor prophet, and if you had trouble finding it, go to Matthew and turn left. Uh, It's one of these obscure minor prophets that we have, and I'm going to read from Zechariah chapter 3 all the way through verse 10, the entire chapter. But before I do that, I just want to tell you why I love preaching this passage. It's been one of the most meaningful texts uh, in my life, and I've been looking at this text and, and the book of Zechariah for some time. Years ago, I was reading through the Chronological Bible one year, and in reading through the Chronological Bible, I I got to Zechariah, and you're reading, this was years ago, and and I got to this story at this section, chapter 3, and it really impacted my life. Zechariah is not one of these books you hear from much, but I pray today that this text ministers to you deeply. The background of Zechariah is that this minor prophet's written about four hundred, excuse me, five hundred years before Jesus comes. This is part of the the exiles that returned back to Jerusalem in the day of Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Ezra. It's part of a group that has actually been in Jerusalem for about twenty years. They've returned and they're in Jerusalem. It's been twenty years since they returned back to Jerusalem, and these are people that are really languishing. They're languishing because they've been far, far removed from those glory days of David and Solomon. The city and temple are only a shadow of what they once were. The stories of God's power seemed long ago, and the promises of God seemed far away. Here, the prophet Zechariah has a series of visions where God says, Return to me, and I will give you hope. That's the background of this passage. And we jump into chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me, here's one of the visions that Zechariah sees in his book. He showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua, this is what the Lord of armies says, if you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you'll both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among these who are standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua You and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant, the branch. Notice the stone I've set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Father, God, we pray, Lord, that you would use your word today. God, thank you for this Old Testament foreshadowing picture, God, of who we are in Jesus. And God, I pray, God, you would use your word and your spirit to minister to our souls deeply today. Father, as we are in a culture and we are in a battle for where we get our worth and identity, God, those things impact our witness. God, those things impact our spiritual growth. Father, may we see clearly today father who we are in christ jesus lord how much you've loved us and father although there may be accusations thrown at us god in christ jesus we are acquitted we are accepted we are approved and we are adopted so father would you make those things real to your people today we pray in jesus name amen as i walk you through the text i'm going to give you three thoughts from the text and then I'm just going to give you some practical applications as I pull out some thoughts about identity that we can get from this passage. Here's number one. There's the characters in the vision. The vision that Zechariah is seeing here, this prophetic vision, there's actually three main characters in this vision. The first character is Joshua. Do not confuse this Joshua with Joshua with Moses. This is a different Joshua. There's been many, many, many generations that have gone by This particular Joshua, he's a high priest in the days of Zechariah. Don't confuse him with Joshua that is with Moses that went into the promised land. This Joshua is the Joshua that's come back after the exile. He's one of those groups of people that have come back, and he's helping the Israelites restore Jerusalem, restore worship in the temple. He is a high priest of his day, an important position. The high priest was somebody from the tribe of Levi, and this person was a person that was uh, significant in the culture and day and time of Israel. He was the one that was to lead Israel back into worshiping the Lord. So this is Joshua, the high priest. Here's the second character that we see in this story, the angel of the Lord. Uh, the angel of the Lord here, I believe strongly, this is what we would call a Christophany. In fact, in Hebrew, it's a malak, uh, Elohim, Malach Yahweh. This is a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ. And, and many commentators take the view that this is Christ in the story. The angel of the Lord is pe- uh, in the story. And then the third character in the vision is Satan. This is the devil, and he's in this story. And we need to be reminded of who Satan is, in Revelation chapter twelve, verse ten, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, the the angel who was prideful and got kicked out of heaven. John eight forty four, Jesus says this. You are of your father, the devil, talking to the religious leaders, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, Jesus says. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan is revealed in this story. You have Joshua the high priest in the story. You have uh, the angel of the Lord who is Jesus in this story. And you have Satan that appears in this story. Those are the characters in chapter 3. Not only would you see the characters in the vision of this story, there's actually a scene that plays out in this story. The scene in the vision, this is actually reminiscent of the book of Job. So if you guys have read through the book of Job, there's a, a heavenly scene, some scholars say, in the book of Job. It starts in Job chapter 1. I'll read it to you in verses 6 through 8. It says, One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? And he answered, From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, no one else on earth like him, a man perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil? The scene that we're about to unpack in the text is a scene that's reminiscent of the book of Job, where we see this heavenly court almost taking place. And there's several things we see in this scene. Here's number one. First, we see Joshua is standing before the Lord. In the text, it says that Joshua is standing before the Lord in verse 1. And he stands before the Lord in verse 1. This expression suggests in the manner in which a defendant stands before a judge in a court. The Hebrew does not state an exact location for this scene, but many commentators say this is similar to the picture in Job. It's It's a heavenly scene. It's a courtroom scene where Satan accuses and Jesus acquits. Don't miss this. A huge part of this story is where we see this taking place in the vision and Satan is doing what Satan does. He is the father of lies. He is the accuser of the brethren. And Satan in this story is accusing and Jesus in this story is acquitting. If you think about that word acquit, it means to absolve, clear, exonerate. Uh, declare innocent find innocent pronounce not guilty that is a huge part of this story that's playing out so we see joshua standing before the lord in this almost of a courtroom of a scene and we see the devil who is in this scene as well here's number two we see joshua has on filthy garments the text tells us that joshua in verse three was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel and i want to put this in context in hebrew The filthy garments is the strongest expression we have in Hebrew for um, filth. In fact, it's excrement. So when a Hebrew audience hears this story... They're envisioning a high priest was someone who was an elevated person in their culture and society, someone who had strict rules for what they were to wear before they could uh, minister before the Lord, and Joshua, the high priest in this story, is standing before the Lord in the Hebrew language that they use, and the audience would have got this. It would have been a stunning picture to them that this high priest stands before the Lord and he's covered in excrement. Uh, That's a visually stunning picture. So this high priest who is standing before the Lord in this story that Zechariah has, he's covered in excrement. And that picture would have been a stunning picture to the people that heard this story. There's nothing more unclean and nasty in this picture. Really, as you think about it culturally for them, this person was, uh, he, he wasn't fit. This picture was a, a declaration that this person wasn't fit to do his duty. This person wasn't fit to do his ministry. You can't be this person in that day and time and even touch anything like this, or you would be unclean. And that picture is a stunning picture that we have of Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord covered in excrement. My wife picks at me sometimes because I, I have a lot of illustrations from my childhood. I was raised on a dairy farm. You just get a lot of illustrations when you're raised on a farm. It happens. I was raised on a dairy farm, and I grew up. I had an assignment when I grew up. And my assignment as a little boy, we had a holding pen. And that holding pen we had would hold the cows before they were milked. And my job, when I was a little kid, my dad would get through milking, and we had a fire hose. And that fire hose was at the end of our barn, and it was uh, attached to a, a big truck wheel, and you could unwind it. And I would get that fire hose, which is incredibly strong, and that holding pin, which held about 150 cows. You know what cows do when they stand on concrete for about two hours before they get ready to be milked? They, they do a lot of stuff. They, they do a lot of stuff. They, they do a lot of pooping and peeing. That's what they do. And it fills that concrete slab full of that. My job growing up every day was to take that hose, that giant fire hose, and to wash it down the drain. And it was, it was slanted so it would go down. It took me exactly 55 minutes to do that. I, to this day, I remember this. I could have solved the world's problems when I was a kid by washing cow poop down a drain. I did that every day. And I would come in to my house, and, and inevitably my mom would always say, George, go change your clothes. And this is why she would say that. That hose would splatter stuff all over me. I would come in and I would have poop and pee on me. And my mom would always say, do not go any farther in this house until you change. That picture is very visual to me. Joshua is seen in this picture. The vision that Zachariah has is a priest who's supposed to represent so much for the people of God. He's covered in excrement. We see the third picture Satan is standing at the right hand of Joshua accusing him there is a scene in the story of accusations Satan doing exactly what Satan does in fact one of the reasons this story is so meaningful to me as a minister is I often put myself in the shoes of Joshua the high priest and I, I think about what Joshua the high priest must have felt when Zechariah told him this but this message I can only imagine what Satan is saying to Zechariah. I know you. I know who you are. I know what you've done. You really think you can lead these people to worship the Lord? And Satan in this story accuses the high priest Joshua. And I think one of the reasons this story is meaningful to me is over the years I get it. I've heard those same accusations in my own life. What makes you think you can lead these people to worship God? I know who you are and what you've done. You're unfit to stand before a holy God and lead the people to worship a holy God. There are many many voices that speak identity into us my friends. The question is whose voice you gonna believe? You gonna believe the voices of this world or are you gonna believe the voices of the kingdom of darkness? Are you going to believe the voices of lies or are you going to believe the voices of truth? And friends, we have the voice of truth and it is the word of the Lord. As we think about where we are shaped by and how we get our worth and identity, many people get their worth and their value and their identity from the wrong place and from the wrong voice. As I think about this picture, and I think about Satan accusing Joshua, standing at the right hand, accusing him. Uh, this picture would have been something uh, seen in that day and time, that courtroom scene. We see these accusations from Satan. Here's a little bit of a news flash I have for you uh, in our time together. If you've never felt like you're unworthy as a Christian, you're probably suffering from self-righteousness. If you've never felt like you're unworthy as a Christian, you are probably suffering from self-righteousness and that's exactly what Jesus is condemning in the Pharisees in the New Testament. Jesus is always condemning their self-righteousness. Pharisees in the New Testament thought they were righteous and good and they actually thought they were above everyone else because they were the children of Abraham and they kept the law or at least they thought. They didn't see themselves as sinners in needs of grace. Friends, it might be a problem for you if you never see yourself as somebody that struggles with worth and value, or you never see yourself as a sinner, you may be struggling with self-righteousness. And that is a sin that needs to be repented of and turned from. The truth is, for us, even though Satan is the father of lies, he really only has to tell the truth about us to accuse us. None of us measure up. None of us meet the expectations of God All of us stand before the Lord with filthy garments covered in excrement. All of us do. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. If you always feel like you're unworthy as a Christian, you're suffering from believing a lie. If you always feel like you're unworthy as a Christian, you're probably believing a lie. That means this. You always think that um, y- y- you're always unworthy. You believe the law, and you don't believe who you really are in Jesus. You may need to repent of self-loathing. Literally, this person hates who they are, and that's contrary to who we're called to be in Christ Jesus. If your identity is in Christ, listen to this, the excrement-covered clothes you had have been replaced with the very righteousness of Christ. If your identity is in Christ... The excrement-covered clothes you had have been replaced with the very righteousness of Jesus. We see the characters in the vision. We see the scene in the vision. And here's the reality in the vision. The reality in the vision is just simply this, and it's beautiful. Look in verses 3 through 7. The reality in the vision, now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. He gets new clothes. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture of a New Testament reality. His new clothes that he gets. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. We see this picture of Joshua getting new clothes. It really points to new life. Paul would put it like this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3-4. through 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Listen, when we repent and believe in Jesus, friends, our excrement-covered clothes have been removed, and we've been given the very righteousness of Jesus. I know you're not Baptist, but that's a good place to say amen. Amen? Amen. We, that's the kind of clothes that we get. We get righteous robes, friends. And and there's this picture of acquittal. There's a picture of accusation that was happening in the story. And now we have transitioned to a picture of acquittal. And that picture of acquittal, there's some specific things that become a reality in this story. And one of the realities is that those clothes that were covered in dung and excrement have been replaced with these new clothes that he gets. A glorious picture for us as we think about who we are in Jesus. Not only does he get new clothes which would have been so symbolic in that day and time for the high priest. It would have been such a symbolic thing that he's got these clean new clothes. And it's a testimony to us about where we stand with Jesus. Not only does he get new clothes, he gets a new crown. Uh, Some translations say a turban, but he gets a new crown here. This is specifically important that you recognize what's going on here. This was a turban or a headdress for the high priest. This is actually mentioned in Exodus chapter 39, verse 30, and it's called a crown there. So this crown or this turban was a specific thing that God called the high priest to wear. And and when you find out what's written on this, it's going to blow your mind. You're going to love this. Exodus 39, 30 says this. They made a plate of the holy crown of pure gold. So this plate of pure gold is going to go on the high priest's head, his crown, his turban. And wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet and this is what the inscription said holy to the lord holy to the lord not only does joshua get new clothes he gets the crown that is on his head that in his role as a high priest engraved in gold says holy to the lord i just want to encourage you if you're in christ jesus you need to have great confidence you are holy to the lord If you are in Christ Jesus, it is not your righteousness that makes you holy before the Lord. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is what you have in Jesus. It is the new standing you have before the Lord that the righteousness of Christ Jesus has been credited to your account. And that picture of holiness for Joshua the high priest here. I, I think about that stunning. The audience would have really grabbed this. The audience would have seen this, and they would have known that that picture of the high priest, that stamp of gold on his head, he is, walking, he is literally walking around with a gold plate on his head that says, Holy to the Lord. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. We see the picture of the new crown. Visualize this. Joshua, the high priest, who represents the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and that's what the high priest did before the Lord, and you and I, he represents you and I in the grand narrative of Scripture. We look to him and we see us. Stands before the Lord. He's in filthy, excrement-covered clothes. He's being accused by Satan until Jesus rebukes Satan in the authoritative name of the Lord, and Jesus says, you are now clean, you are acquitted, Then he is clothed in new clothes, given a new crown, symbolizing the fact his sins and the sins of the nation have been cleansed by the authority and the grace of the Lord. What a glorious, beautiful picture in that story. Not only does he get new clothes and a new crown, uh, the text tells us he's recommissioned. It seems to me that Joshua the high priest needed somebody to tell him, hey, you're good to go. You're good to go, and you need to get busy serving the Lord. That's essentially the layman's translation of what happens in the rest of the text. Look in verse 7. In verse 7, this is what the Lord of armies says, speaking to Joshua the high priest. If you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I'll also grant you access among those, among these who are standing there. It's, it's a recommissioning verse. And in the vision, the Lord is recommissioning joshua the high priest and telling him hey follow my ways do what i've called you to do and you'll represent me you'll be able to do that we see this picture of he gets new clothes he gets a crown and he's he's recommissioned jesus says here's my translation jesus says you're clean get busy <laughs> you're clean get busy and it, joshua is recommissioned in this story to do the work of the lord verse eight i'm not going to unpack verse eight through ten but verse eight's a transition Zachariah goes from the near real-time prophecy concerning the ministry of Zachariah to the future messianic prophecy about Christ. He talks about the branch coming. And that branch that's coming is Jesus. I'm not going to unpack all that. But those last two verses are a reference to a messianic future prophecy that Christ would fulfill. And as I think about this text and just why it's so meaningful for me, is there have just been times in my life where I have battled my worth and value. I have battled whether I'm enough. I have battled what other people think of me. I have battled my performance, my achievement, and all those things. And one of the reasons this is such a meaningful passage to me, somebody asked me one time, Pastor, when did you stop battling identity? <laughs> I said, never. I have to remind myself. I, I'm a Bible reader. I've got a godly wife. I, I have a blessed home. Uh, I've I got good things going with my good Christian friends around me. But friends, in all those things around me, I still battle the lies of getting my worth and value from the wrong place. And I have to remind myself on a daily basis sometimes that my worth and my value doesn't come horizontally. It doesn't come from what you think about me. It doesn't come from my performance. It doesn't come from my achievement. My worth and value comes from above. And it comes from who I am in Christ Jesus. That I need to look at myself and see myself, according to Scripture, as someone who has been hidden in Christ. Someone who is in Him and being in Him. One of the most life-changing times in my life is when I really begin to just lay down a foundational belief. Well, this is who I am in Jesus. This is who I am in Jesus. This is who I am in Jesus. I want to encourage you. It impacts your spiritual growth, and it impacts your witness to the watching world. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1-7, through seven, it's, just a, it's a beautiful Old Testament foreshadowing of our new life in Christ. This passage is a beautiful, beautiful foreshadowing of our new life in Christ. Christ hadn't come yet, but Christ is coming. The branch is on the way. That's what the end of the text talks about. So as I think about the text, I want to make sure you hear me preaching through that text and and telling you that story. It's a story of accusal and acquittal. Uh, and It's a story that uh, is a vision that the prophet Zechariah has on behalf of the nation of Israel and Joshua the high priest. As I think about that, I think about there's some things that we can learn from that in our battle of identity. Because here's, here's where I am. I think, why did God choose for Zach, for Joshua the high priest to be a big part of this story? Because I think, and I'll find out when I get to heaven, and I don't want to add to the text. Don't hear me doing that. I think Joshua the high priest is really struggling in his day and time if he can lead the people of Israel to worship the Lord. I really do. I think they are coming back from those days of captivity. The glory days of David and Solomon are gone. The temple is not anything like it used to be. The city of Jerusalem is not anything like it used to be. It could be gloom, doom, and despair for me. And I believe that Joshua is struggling with all of those things. And part of the story that comes out of this text is God affirms to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been acquitted and you are good. Get busy serving my people and leading my people to worship the Lord seven practical exhortations in battling for identity. Excuse me, six practical exhortations for battling identity. Six practical exhortations from Zechariah 3 verses 1 through 7 in our battle for identity. Here's number one, identify the enemy. Identify the enemy. There is an enemy in the story. His name is Satan and he is the devil. Ephesians chapter 6, 11 through 12 says this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able, be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a real spiritual battle out there. And one of the things we need to do if we're going to have a, 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 have a foundational understanding of our identity in Christ is recognize that there's an enemy out there and he hates us and his name is the devil satan wants you to believe your identity is everything but christ satan wants you to believe your identity is everything but christ approval power success acceptance achievement satan is always speaking lies to us every day saying those things are what give us identity Satan is at work every day accusing the brethren of lies. I grew up, and I don't have these on anymore hardly. I loved them. How many of you grew up watching Tom and Jerry? Help me out a little bit. Come on, you're out here in California, but this is the real world. Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry. Do you know when you grew up watching Tom and Jerry, there was a time in most of the shows, at least one episode, that had like three back-to-back one of the episodes in Tom and Jerry would usually have them coming to a crisis of belief about what they needed to do and in that scenario you'd have a little angel Tom on one side of Tom's shoulder and then you'd have a little devil Tom on the other side of you know you had this angel and this devil you had this picture of this it battle going on about what you do friends that battle is real and the battle we have is a spiritual battle and We need to identify the enemy and recognize there is a war being waged against us. And the the enemy is the devil. Just for thought here, the enemy isn't your brother in Christ. Your enemy is not your spouse. The enemy is the devil. The Bible is very clear on that. If we're going to have our worth and value in Jesus, we need to recognize there's a real enemy out there. And identify him and understand that that is happening but we have all we need in Christ Jesus here's number two embrace truth embrace truth what are some practical exhortations for battling identity worth and value identify the enemy and embrace truth 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 Charles Haddon Spurgeon would uh, use this and said the great exchange for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we have become the righteousness of God. What a glorious, glorious truth for us. Your identity in Christ frees you from the accusations of the devil and the approval of man. That may not be in your notes, but I would really write that one down. Your identity in Christ frees you from the accusations of the devil and the approval of man. Two things that we battle in our quest for identity, worth, and value. Your identity in Christ frees you from the accusations of the devil and the approval of man. Satan wants you to feel guilty when God has called you righteous. Satan wants you to feel guilty when the truth of God's word in Christ Jesus, God says you're righteous. Those are two totally opposite things. Your identity is not how you perform. It is in how Christ performed. And he has conquered sin, death, and the grave. And our righteousness is in Christ. In Christ, we are accepted. In Christ, we are approved. In Christ, we are adopted. You're accepted. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of reconciliation, you are accepted by God. You no longer have to fear rejection. Because of justification, you are completely forgiven and you are pleasing to the Lord. You are accepted by God. What a wonderful truth. Not only are you accepted by God, you are approved by God. Because of propitiation, you are approved and deeply loved by God. You no longer have to fear punishment. Jesus took your punishment on the cross. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are accepted by God and we are approved by God. What a glorious verse Paul gives. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You don't have to fear punishment. Jesus has taken our punishment on the cross for the wrath of God. Not only are you accepted, not only are you approved, but my friends, you're adopted. Because of regeneration, I'm a new creation, the Bible says. I'm complete in Christ. I'm no longer a child of the world. I am a child of God. God makes us his very own children. Galatians 3, 25 through 27, but now the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. I told this story yesterday at the marriage conference. I'm going to tell it here. Many of you weren't there. One of the most significant events in my life concerning adoption happened when we adopted. Uh, we have two children in our home that have been with us since they were one and two. They're now nine and ten. And we started fostering them when they were one and two. And it was a long journey of back and forth. Are we going to get them? Are we not going to get them? The, the court systems in New Orleans specifically are very messed up. And it was a long, arduous journey. We spent many, many uh, days and nights crying and not knowing what was going to happen. And at the end of that journey, of the two year journey of wondering, are they going to be in our home? And already having uh, totally brought them into our lives, totally brought them into our home, and they were our kids three months in. That whole thing, two years long, and when the, uh, the rights were finally terminated and the adoption could happen, we had to go before a lawyer in New Orleans because you have to sign all these papers for legal things in Louisiana. Louisiana still has a legal code that has a Spanish and French influence, and it's very different than any other legal code in America. They have a law in Louisiana called forced airship. Forced airship is this. If you adopt someone, you have to legally sign the law of forced airship, meaning this. Forged Airship says the kids that you bring into your home, they're your kids, and they have everything your kids have. You can never give your biological kids more than you give your adopted kids. You can never do anything to them that wouldn't be in line with what you're doing for the rest of your family. You are legally bound that they get everything you have. It's a legal thing you sign that says even if you adopt them and they don't want to be a part of your family anymore, they're yours legally, and they still have access to everything you have. And that lady pushed that little stack of papers across the desk for me to sign, and I was just slobbering, crying, snot coming out my nose. And the lawyer said, are you you having second thoughts? I said, absolutely not. They can have it all. And friends, we have it all in Christ Jesus. We have it all. When, When you came to Christ, the glorious truth of who we are in Jesus is that his righteousness is credited to us. And we stand before the Lord, approved because of his righteousness, accepted because his righteousness. We approach the throne of God with boldness and confidence. Not only are we approved and we are accepted by the Lord, God does something our human minds can't even fathom some days. The holy God of the universe declares us his children, and he makes us his own, and he calls us to cry out to him in language that says, Abba, Father. That's what the Lord does to us. Friends, that's an incredible reality of who we are in Jesus. We have all we can ever want or dream of in Christ Jesus. Friends, we have it all. Here's the truth of this text The Lord loves us in Christ with a fierce and forever love. Live in that truth. Don't believe the accusation of the devil or live for the approval of man. Here's the third thing you need to do if you're going to battle worth and value, battling for identity. Resist comparison. Resist comparison. One of the reasons we struggle with our identity is because we're comparing ourselves to other people and other things. You will never walk in freedom and joy if you're always living in comparison with others. Listen to me. You will never If you're in Christ Jesus, you ought to be walking with freedom and you ought to be walking with joy. I told the folks last night, in Christ Jesus, we ought to be the most hopeful people on the planet. You will never walk in freedom and joy if you're always living in comparison with others. You can never live on mission if you are always dissatisfied and discontent with your life. You cannot live on mission if you're always dissatisfied and discontent with your life. Comparison creates discontentment. Jeremiah Burroughs writes this, the devil is the most discontented creature in the world. He is the proudest creature that is and the most discontented creature, the most dejected creature. Now, therefore, he says, So much discontent as you have, so much of the spirit of Satan you have. Comparison is a terrible taskmaster. And may we not be like Satan in our quest for comparison and our discontentness and the evidence that he shows in Scripture. May we not do that. Comparison really steals and robs our joy. Identify whatever or whoever gets you into a comparison funk and give it to Jesus. It's not worth it. Identify whoever or whatever gets you into comparison funk and give it to Jesus. It's not worth it. Here's number four, walk in the light. Walk in the light. In our battle for identity, friends, we've just got to walk in truth. We've got to walk in the light. When we get our worth and value horizontally from others, our jobs, our roles, et cetera, we find out the crushing truth. It never satisfies. Let me build this up. When we get our worth and value horizontally from others, our jobs, our roles, etc., we find out the crushing truth, it never satisfies us. Jesus satisfies. That horizontal worth and value never, ever satisfies. And this is what happens when we get our worth and value horizontally. We often medicate with sinful practices and habits to cope with our dissatisfaction. Those things don't measure up. They never satisfy. And one of the things we do to cope with the fact that none of those things satisfy is that we'll give in to sinful practices and habits to cope with our dissatisfaction. It could be food, it could be porn, it could be alcohol, drugs, hobbies that become idols. When what we need to do is repent and run to Jesus realizing that the gospel truly satisfies. And friends, that's why it's so important to walk in the light. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Darkness will and can become overwhelming and debilitating in our lives if we don't let the light in. And I would encourage you to recognize the importance of that as your battle for identity. You can't walk in darkness, and you can't have sinful practices that are unconfessed and not repented of, and be confident in your identity and worth and value in Jesus can't do it. And may it be that you recognize nothing in this world satisfies but Jesus. And he satisfies in every way. Here's number five, joining community. Fifth practical exhortation, joining community. Paul, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13, Which sometimes I think is Paul, but I don't want to go there. (laughs) Sometimes you give it away when you say that. Hebrews chapter three, verse thirteen. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It says, Exhort one another. There's over one hundred New Testament passages that reference one anothering. Most of the time, the one another passages in the New Testament are referencing one anothering in community of other Christians. It's talking about one anothering in the church. Uh, with the community of faith the community of god the church god's people if we're going to battle identity friends we need to have other christians around us we need to join in community the the church the people of god you got to be involved in that the only thing in creation that was not good was adam being alone it is the context of christian community that we wage war against the lies of the devil and the temptations of this world the reason we can stand alone in the world is because we are united in christ through community the reason that we can stand alone in the world is because we are united in Christ through Christian community. We desperately need each other in the body of Christ. When one part of the body is absent, the body is weakened. And as we think about our battle for identity, friends, we need one another. We need to walk with one another. We need to encourage one another. And we do that. We're the people of God doing that. We are able to remind ourselves of who we are in Jesus. We so desperately need one another. I have worked beside and watched recovery groups for a long time. And I want to say this. Churches have a lot to learn from recovery groups. And this is why. The recovery groups that I've been a part of, and I'm talking about addiction groups, recovery groups, alcohols, things like that. Those recovery groups, one of the things I've noticed over the years, they are with one another. (laughs) I mean, they lock arms with one another. They journey with one another. They're there for one another. They have something about community that I believe we miss as churches some days. I just want to encourage you, you need to be in Christian community. That battle for worth and identity is going to be an overwhelming thing if we're not around other believers and we're not in Christian community with other Christian people. Here's the last thing I would give you. Never quit and get busy. (laughs) Never quit and get busy. As we think about a battle for identity, some practical exhortations, never quit and get busy. Your identity in Christ is your motivation to live on mission and to glorify the Lord. I feel like Joshua was probably on the brink of quitting until this vision. I really do. A secondary theme in this text is the recommissioning and reinstatement of Joshua the high priest. God says you're clean, get busy being my minister. The reality of your identity in Christ, God has exchanged your excrement-covered clothes for the very righteousness of Jesus. This should compel you to be an ambassador for Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, there is no stronger motivation for you to step out of these doors and to live on mission for the glory of God than your identity in Christ. Gospel courage, gospel confidence is the fruit of your identity in Christ. Gospel courage is the action from your identity in Christ. Because our identity is secure in the finished work of Jesus, we have the fruit of confidence, firm trust, a secure belief, to stop believing the lie that you need to be a perfect Christian or a super Christian. We just need some faithful Christians who know who they are in Jesus. Gospel courage is the action we take for the glory of Christ. We do not have to fear what others in this world think of us. We can live courageously as we navigate this post-Christian context for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. There was a series on planet Earth uh, years ago, a uh, nature series on BBC, and one of the series that had uh, a little episode that were documenting these lizards hatching from eggs on this remote island. And these little lizards would come out of their eggs on the beach, and they'd come out of their eggs, and then all of a sudden on that island, there's like hundreds of snakes. And these little lizards would come out of their eggs, and they would try to make it to this place they had to get. And literally, I used to show this video but people would have audible gasps. All these snakes come out of the rocks, and they're chasing this little lizard. And like 10 snakes are are bound on top of this little bitty lizard, and they're biting him, and there's coiling around him, but they don't recognize that they actually let him go, and they're biting each other, and they're wrapping around each other, and the little lizard like pops his head out and sees that he's free, and he just takes off running, and he makes it. I mean, He he gets to where he's going to get, and the snakes can't get him. And I love the picture of that because it looks like he's dead and gone, but he just doesn't quit. He doesn't give up, and he gets to the end. One of the things that I want to encourage you in, brothers and sisters, don't give up. Don't give up. If you're here today and you know Jesus, you stand before the Lord accepted, approved, and adopted by God. If you're here today and you know Jesus, you do not have to get your worth and value from this world. If you're here today and you know Jesus, you are loved as much as you can possibly be loved. And if you're here today and you know Jesus, friends, leave this place as a hopeful, joyful Christian and live on mission with God because he's worth it. Just as the prophet Zechariah had the vision to tell Joshua, the high priest, you're good, you're clean, get busy. My testimony to you this morning is if you're in Christ Jesus, you're good, you're clean. Get busy living for the glory of God. As we come and respond to the message today, I want to ask you to bow your heads. I know Brian's going to come with a closing song. As you reflect on what the Lord has said to you today, I just want to encourage you at some time, some place, maybe a follow-up conversation with your pastor. Do you know where you stand with the Lord? Are you here today and you know you've repented of your sins and trusted alone in Christ Jesus? You can't have your worth and identity in Christ if you don't know Christ. My prayer today is that if you're in this room, you know Jesus. And if you're here and you know Christ, are you living in such a way that models to the watching world that you're getting your worth and value from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you? You're not getting your worth and value from horizontal places what people say, what you do, your acceptance, your performance, but your worth and value today is testified to the watching world. It's from and in Christ Jesus. If that's not you. Maybe you just sit in your chair today and you pray, Lord, forgive me. God, I repent of finding my worth and value in the wrong places. Lord, today I acknowledge that my worth and value is in Jesus. Whatever God would have you do today, you would do that. Father, thank you for this sweet crowd. God, thank you for the truth of your word. God, thank you so much, God, that you have loved us so very much. Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus, all God and all man, to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, that we recognize this morning very clearly, God, our righteousness cannot save us. God, our works cannot save us. Father, uh, our best day on this planet cannot save us. Lord, we can only be saved, God, by your grace through faith. And Lord, we recognize, God, that if we're here today in Christ Jesus, Lord, you love us. God, you have accepted us. Lord, you approve us. God, you have adopted us. You've made us your very own children. So, Lord, may we repent. God, if we're getting our worth and value from the wrong places, God, may we ask this morning, Lord, uh, that your spirit would remind us of who we are in Jesus. And, God, may we leave here today, God, living for your glory in this world, God, that desperately needs to see people, Lord, who are firm in their conviction and commitment, Lord, about who they are in Jesus. God, thank you again, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.